Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. You were praying and nobody was listening. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you felt like that. Some of us, when it comes to prayer, we, we pray so quickly and maybe even so infrequently that we don't even notice nobody's listening. But I'd like to spend some time talking with you today and looking at a, a very important passage of Scripture from the Bible that in many ways tells us how to pray and be heard. And that's what I'm hoping will happen today, is that as you and I read this passage, maybe even use this as a template for prayer, that we would learn how to pray in such a way that God really listens to us. Now, you're probably thinking, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God knows everything, that he's everywhere present. Are you telling me he needs hearing aids? What's, what, what are you saying by this? No, and I'm not saying that you need a megaphone to make sure that God listens to you. I'm not saying that it's about performance in any way or that God somehow doesn't pay attention or he's distracted or he's away and uh, on a trip and, and not listening to you. I remember as, as a young father, one of my kids coming up to me. In fact, this probably happened with all five of my kids, but they would be, and I was reading the paper or doing something engrossed, you know, looking at the back of the cereal box, something important like that, and just kind of engrossed in what I was reading there and all that kind of stuff. And the kids would come up and start talking to me. And then after a while, they would say, Dad, I'm talking to you. And finally, they would tap me on it. Dad, Dad, I'm, I'm talking to you. What, what, what? Oh, what? And then we'd have a conversation. It's, it's not that God is aloof from you or not listening to you or not paying attention to you. But, but sometimes you know what it's like when you're talking to someone and it's very obvious, even though you hear each other, you're talking past each other. You're talking on a different wavelength. And you're not really connecting with one another in the conversation. And I'd like to say that the passage of scripture that we're looking at today will help us get on the same wavelength. That we would see ourselves when we pray and why we pray the way God sees us. And that we would see what's the most important thing to be praying about, the priority for our prayers. And that we would understand how God wants to unleash his power in answer to our prayers to work in our lives. And so would you take your Bible, please, and let's turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 86. We've been talking about songs of the soul this summer, and we've been looking at, you know, these psalms in particular speak to who we are. They resonate with us. They identify us and show us what we're really like. They're almost like uh, the, the psalmist. In this case, David is holding up a mirror, looking at himself or looking at you, and you see your reflection. This is me, and this is what I'm like, and this is what I need. And in the process of seeing ourselves as we really are, we get a really clearer glimpse of who God is and what he's done and what he's all about and, and, and how he's working in the world today and in our lives as well. And so as we do this, we get a clearer picture of God and we get a clearer picture of ourselves and it should shape and mold how we pray. Because if you turn to God, he will turn to you. And that's what he'll do in prayer. If you turn to God, he will turn to you. And that's the promise that you and I have when it comes to praying. And we see that in this passage in Psalm 86. Now, this is what I'd like to do today, just to mix it up a little bit. I'd like us all to stand, get your Bible out, and we're going to read this together. 
And the way we're going to do it, though, we're going to do this uh, kind of like they used to do in, at the, from what we understand, the temple in Jerusalem, when they would sing songs and read scriptures, they'd have one team of singers over on one side of the, t the temple court, and then there was another group of singers on the other side of the temple court, and they would recite it back and forth to each other. Okay, and so we're going to start over here on the, the parking lot side of the church. The pious parking lot people, okay? And they are going to start out with verse 1. And then the people over here on the woods side of the church, the wild and worshipful woodside people, okay? They're going to be saying the even-numbered verses over here. So let's, let's just do this together, and we're going to hear God's word, and we're listening carefully to what he says. Ready? Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Serve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. And then all together on the last verse. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's be seated. Thank you for doing that. I find that standing up sometimes helps me pay attention, and saying it out loud helps me pay attention even more. So I'm hoping that as you did that, you heard and saw and, uh, what God was saying in this psalm. It might have struck you in a new and fresh way as well. This is an interesting psalm. Let me tell you a little bit about it. You notice at the very beginning, it says that it's a psalm of David. And as we read about what David wrote in this psalm, the thing that's very interesting, and scholars have picked this up, and you maybe noticed this yourself as you're reading it or if you were to spend some time reflecting on it. This psalm is like a quilt. 
It's a patchwork of verses that are actually taken from other psalms and other songs found throughout Scripture. Some uh, scholars have called it a mosaic. All these pieces kind of woven and sewn together, much like a quilt would be. And, is, and, is, and the idea is, is that this psalm then sets out a pattern for how we should be praying. It's a template, a guide for how to pray, the kind of things that we should pray. I have found it especially meaningful and powerful to me to actually read this psalm out loud as a prayer. And just read it and think about what I just said. I'm poor and needy. Lord, you know how I'm really struggling in this moment. You know, you're, you're steadfast in your love and you're so merciful and you're so forgiving. Lord, I really need your forgiveness because you know what I did the other day or what I did just this morning, how I treated Dawn or what I said here or what I did there or what I thought. Please forgive me. And God, I'm so weak. I need your strength. And as you work your way through that psalm, let it be a pattern for how to pray. There's something else that's very interesting about this psalm. This psalm, you'll notice, okay, I don't know if you picked this up in the English translation, but sometimes the word Lord, the name Lord, L-O-R-D, is all capital letters. And sometimes in this psalm, it's capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. Is that a typo? Is that just an error that the proofreader didn't catch? What's, what's going on with that? The English translators of this passage are trying to get across the idea that there are two different names for God, actually three different names for God in this passage, because you have G-O-D, God, that's the Hebrew name Elohim being used there, and then you have the all capital letter Lord, that's the name Yahweh, God's personal name as the creator God, the self-existent one. And then there's the capital L with the lowercase O-R-D that's used over seven times, seven times, excuse me, in this psalm. And that's the name Adonai. That just simply means a sovereign or a master, someone who's in charge. And as David writes this psalm and as these verses have been compiled and stitched together, quoting from other passages that David was familiar with, as he does this, he's recognizing that he is God's servant, that he's yielding to God and letting God lead him and direct him that, yes, he might be the king, he might have a call of God upon his life, but he recognizes that ultimately it's God that's in charge and God is his leader and God is his Lord and God is his master. And David says, I'm just your servant. I yield to you. I do what you want. Now, friends, a lot of us struggle with this idea. I do. I don't want anybody bossing me around. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Do you struggle with that? You probably do. I like the idea of being able to make my own choices and make my own decisions. And, you know, I, I've got my own destiny in my own hands, and I want to do that. Now, even as a Christian, I pray and I ask God to lead me. I want to do his will. But I, I chafe at this idea of having somebody being my master, my sovereign. I thought I could control my own destiny. And even if, as a believer, I say, I don't, of course I want to do God's will, I still struggle inwardly with this idea of I want to make my own decisions and call my own shots. But David is saying here, none of us have that right. None of us have that kind of authority. None of us have that kind of autonomy and freedom to choose to do whatever we want to do. We are utterly dependent as God's creatures. We have to yield to his authority to do his will. 
And we struggle with this, yes, because we're very proud people. At least I know I am. I think you might struggle with that a little bit too, perhaps, in my humble opinion. But when you and I see how beautiful and great God is, then we willingly yield to him. There's a beautiful um, scene at the end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy. This is in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the seven books. And Narnia, of course, is this country, and um, it's a fantastic country where the animals talk. And it's ruled ultimately by this great and good, glorious lion named Aslan. And the country has been overrun and, and, and there's a neighboring country that are, the people are perceived as enemies of the Narnians and there's a, there's a boy in that country who, who was carried off as a captive. His name is Shasta and it's a story of Shasta recognizing that he's actually a king of Narnia. He actually has a right to rule Narnia but he's been carried off and he's been a slave and He's now finding his freedom and he meets two talking horses and a young girl who's a princess and they, they go on this grand adventure of trying to escape from the enemy and, and there were all these times where they, there was a lion chasing them or they were being under attack or they were very frightened and a little kitty cat came up to comfort them and there were all these things and they finally come to the end of the story when they've been rescued and they're free and everything is being revealed when Aslan appears. And one of the horses that helped Shasta and the princess girl that was with him comes up to Aslan. And this is this beautiful mare, this race horse, a princess's horse. Sees Aslan and she comes up to him. She's very scared. She's, she's twitching. She's frightened. And she comes up to Aslan and she says to Aslan, you are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I would rather be eaten by you than fed by anybody else. You see, when you and I recognize the glory and goodness of God that's revealed in this psalm, I will gladly serve you. I will gladly cry out to you. You are so beautiful. You are so wonderful. You are so forgiving and gracious and kind. You're so wonderful. I'd rather be eaten by you. I'd rather be served by you than fed by anybody else. I don't care if anybody else serves me. I would rather serve you. So how about if we dive in? How about if we look at this psalm and look, look at it carefully and just kind of wade our way through it and in the process of learn what does it mean? What are the privileges of a servant of God when it comes to prayer? Because you know what? You can pray and God would listen to you. But the key is to turn to him because he wants to turn to you. As we start reading, I want you to notice also one other little detail about the psalm. You can see this especially in the layout of the English translation, at least here in print in the, the, the book version, uh, not the tablet necessarily. But I want you to notice that, that basically one through seven is the first stanza, and then there's a little break. And then eight through 13 is like the second stanza, and there's a little break. Do you see that in print? And then verses 14 to 17, there's a little break as well. Uh, that's the last stanza. And, and I think each stanza has a slightly different emphasis. And I think in the process of looking at these different stanzas, we see that there's a, a lesson for us about praying in such a way that God hears us. Praying that's like turning to God so that he'll turn to us. 
So in verse 1, it simply says, just notice what's going on here. He says, I, I want you to incline, my, incline your ear to me, O Lord, and answer me because I'm poor and needy. Preserve my life. I'm godly. That just simply means I'm loyal to you. I'm devoted to you. He's not boasting and bragging. He's just admitting I'm, I'm on your team. I'm on your side. I'm, I'm serving you. I'm loyal to you. Save your servant. I'm trusting in you. You are my God. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and listen to my plea for grace. For in the day of trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. I think what we see here in this opening part, if we're going to pray and God hear us, if we're going to really pray as one of his servants so that he, the master of the universe, listens to us, it's recognizing our poverty. It starts there. I think real prayer that's powerful, that's effective, that really moves, that works, that changes us and moves God to act, it flows out of our poverty. It's a recognition of our poverty. It's recognizing that we have nothing that we're not strong enough to handle the problems that we have. We're not able to handle the challenges, that diagnosis from the doctor that we're frightened about, the fact that our finances are so tight, the fact that there are people who are critical of us, attacking us, maybe even persecuting us. All these things are beyond our ability to deal with and resolve and fix on our own, and we're in poverty. And so he says, I'm poor and needy. None of us Americans like to admit that, but he's saying here, we're, I'm poor and needy, and that's where prayer starts. I, I need you. I don't have anything. I'm weak and helpless, and I'm, I'm poor and needy. Have you thought about that when you go to pray? As you're worried about that medical procedure that you have? or that family disturbance that you're kind of sailing through and the waters are really rough right now because there's some conflict in the home? Have you thought, I'm poor and needy. There's no way I can fix this myself. I desperately need you to intervene, God. Please do that. Have you thought about that? Because I tell you, that'll wake up your prayer life when you see the desperation of how much you need God to step in. Save me. Have you ever thought about that really what you need is God to rescue you in this moment? Oh, we think about, oh, I got saved from my sins and I'm saved from hell and I'm going to heaven. Hallelujah, Jesus. And we're all excited about that. But what about saving me from my own pride and saving me from this destructive habit and saving me from this conflict that could wreck our marriage if I don't humble myself and admit that I'm wrong and ask for forgiveness? Or if I don't forgive when someone has, forgive, has hurt me. We need to be saved in those moments as well. In other words, this business of salvation is not something that's one and done. It's something that has to keep going. It's something that we constantly, that we perpetually need. Our poverty is ongoing because we're weak human beings. We are in a desperate situation, desperate straits. And unless God steps in and helps us, and these big trials that we face in life, we'll never be able to overcome them. Be gracious to me, for I cry unto you all the day. Prayer is not something that you just do in the morning when you wake up or at a meal. It's certainly not just something you do at the end of the day. It's all of that, but it's so much more. It's in between as well, as you're going along, as you're driving, as you're working, as you're going into that next meeting, and you're kind of tense about it because you know there might be an argument. You've got to do a little confrontation with your coworkers. 
in those moments to say, God, would you please help? Would you please work in me and help me be calm and peaceful as well to be true to you? Give ear to my prayer. Oh, and remember verse five, you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Here in this verse, verse five, verse 15, it's found uh, this statement of God's abounding love and his mercy and forgiveness that overflows. It's first found in, in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments and the plans for the, the tabernacle, but it's repeated seven times throughout the scriptures. And it's just a constant reminder of how good and great God is in extending the forgiveness to us because frankly, there are times when we're not loyal. There are times when we're not devoted to him. And there's time when we're too proud to admit that we are in poverty and we cannot help ourselves. And it's in those moments that we remember that God is still faithful and true and I can cry out to him when I admit that I'm wrong. He does forgive and he does restore and he does make us right with him. He hears our prayers and answers them when we cry out to him. And so in all of this, David says then in verse 7, in the day of trouble I call to you. What do you do in the day of trouble? I'll tell you what I do a lot of times. I try to figure things out by myself. <laughs> Pull this connection, read this book, watch this video, do something, try to figure it all out myself. I, I maybe look and see how much money's in the bank. I maybe go talk to a couple friends, try to figure something. Maybe I'll whine and complain and gripe to other people. Can you believe what happened here? Like that. But the first thing should be I call unto you in the day of trouble. I cry out to you. A lot of us, that's the last thing we do because we realize everything we tried to figure out didn't work. And we desperately need God to step in in that moment. Prayer flows out of our poverty. It's recognizing that we are desperate and there is a God who's so good and so great that he wants to help us in our weakness, in our fear, and in our anxiety, in our poverty, our emptiness, in our failure. He wants to forgive and restore and rebuild and make new. So let's admit the poverty. Let's be honest about that. Let's stop denying that we've got it because we don't. Because it'll shape our prayer and call us to cry out to him. In the second stanza, the emphasis here is not our poverty as much as it should be our priority. The thing that's most important in prayer. What prayer is all about. Have you ever noticed in the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught the disciples? You know it. Okay? I was just with a group of guys. Friday night, we said it together, kind of reminding each other of it. Our Father who art in heaven, what's the first thing you ask for? Hallowed be thy name. Not get me out of this mess. Make me feel better. Please put a little something in my bank account. Please take away this pain. That's not the first thing that Jesus said we should pray for. The first thing we should pray for is that God would be honored and be praised. That's what I think David is trying to emphasize in verses 8 through 13. It's about priorities. It's about what's most important in prayer. And so he says, very, there's a big shift in gears in verse 8, and he says, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Now David's not saying that there really are junior gods that you know, pretend to be like Jesus and God the Father and, you know, somehow are equal to them. He's not saying that. But they're gods that people worship. They're gods that different nations and different religions worship. And he says, among all these gods that people worship, whether it's Allah or Buddha or any of the other uh, divine deities and beings that people lift up and honor and recognize, holy people, holy men and women, among them, there's none like you. 
You're incomparable. There's nobody like you at all, God. You are, and notice he uses the, the Lord with the small letters there. You are the master. You are the sovereign. You are the king over all. Not, nor are there works, are any works like yours. None of these other gods, the miracles that they do, the things that they write, the things that they communicate to their people, the life that they offer their people, it's nothing compared to you. The works of creation that you have performed. The works of our salvation that you have performed. There is none like you. Verse 9. All the nations that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. This is the beautiful thing. Even though all the nations of the world worship different gods and honor different gods, ultimately all those nations will come to the place where they recognize that only the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, is the one who is the one true God and worthy of our worship, and they will come to him. They will surrender to him, and they will trust in him. In other words, David is saying, everything that I know about you, God, makes me realize that you are greater and better than anybody else I know, any other deity that anybody ever worships. You are greater than that. And eventually all these nations, all these people groups are going to come and they're going to forsake their gods and goddesses and they're going to come to you and they're going to worship you. It's all coming back to you. You're the one that's becoming more sharply focused. You're the target and everything and everything in the universe and every person in the universe is ultimately aiming at and coming toward. He keeps going in verse 10. For you are great. And you do wondrous things, and you alone are God. So here David in his praying is, is professing his worship of God. His understanding that God is great and there's no one like him. And that all the nations are eventually going to come to this God and honor him and worship him too. And you think, yeah, that's great, that's good theology. But then look at verse 11. And I have to admit, I, for a long time I thought, now what, what is he trying to say by this? Why is this in the middle of this passage? And I think verse 11 is in the middle of this passage because if that's the priority of all the nations ultimately, that they're going to come and worship you, if you are the God that's truly worthy of worship, if you are the one who's the focus, who does all these deeds and all these works of creation and salvation that no one else can do, if you alone are God, then I want to make sure that I'm focused on you, that you and you alone are my priority. I want you before and above anyone else. I'm your servant, but I choose to serve you. I'm your servant. You're not forcing me to serve you. You're not coercing me to serve you. You're not exploiting me or harming me in some way to, to serve you. No, I choose to serve you. You're so beautiful. You're so good. You're so forgiving. You're so wonderful. I want to serve you. That's what he's saying in verse 11. Would you read it with me, please, verse 11? Teach me your way, O Lord, and I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This, I think, is, is the key verse for how to apply this, this pattern for prayer. In verse 11, he's, he's making a request. He's saying, I want you to teach me. I don't want you just to save me and rescue me and bless me and help me. I, I want that, but I want something more. I want you. I want you to teach me. Literally, I want you to guide me. I want you to mark out the path that I'm supposed to follow. Then take me by the hand and guide me and help me go down that path. Because I want to walk in your way. I want to follow you in your way of life. And, and it's interesting that when he say that I may walk in your truth, the 
the idea of walk there is, you know, step by step, I keep going a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. It's not just like, I'm in your truth right now and I can just stand here. It's everywhere I go, I want to be in your truth. As I go through life, I want my life to be habitually conformed to your truth. I want to be faithful in every moment, in every place, in every situation. As I live my life, I want to be conformed to your truth, your will for my life. You are my truth. And I yield to you. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth, that I may follow you in the path of truth you've laid out for me. I'll never be led astray. I'll never be caught off guard by falsehood. I want to be walking in your truth. Now here's the key to how to do that. Look at the last line of verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. I like how the the Book of Common Prayer there says, knit my heart to you that I may fear your name. I think what he's trying to emphasize here is not just me being attached to God, united to him, that's true, but I think it's also understanding that we live in a world where there are so many gods and goddesses, so many idols that we trust in and worship and follow that are distractions that lead us astray, that pull us away from truly being focused on that one true God who is self-existent, who created everything that there is, who brought about our salvation, who is the one who is the Lord and master of all the universe. These gods and goddesses, these idols distract us from serving and following him. And David is saying, I pray that you would unite my heart to fear you. I find myself so easily going after this idol or worshiping this God or wondering what this goddess would do or going down the path of this philosophy or theology and they lead me away from you. And you say, well, y'all, if we lived in a country that was polytheistic, had all these gods and goddesses, I could see where that would be very tempting. It's like the, the old story of the guy that was over in Vietnam and he was in great danger and he was wearing a necklace and on the necklace there was a cross and there was a crescent and a star and there was a star of David and you know there was a sign of Hinduism. There was all these different religious symbols on this necklace. And the guy, another friend said, what are you doing? He says, to him, why are you wearing a necklace with all those religious symbols? You know, you should be devoted to just one. He says, I just have all my bases covered. And that's, that's what a lot of us think is I'll just take a little bit from this and 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 I put this together, this smorgasbord of religion and, and, and you know, my spirituality and, I, and I'll be fine because I've got the best of everything. And David is saying it doesn't work like that. It's being fully devoted to the God who created you and sent his son to save you. That's who you need to be devoted to because there's salvation in nobody else. And so... David is recognizing that the nature of human nature is that we're easily led astray by these different gods and goddesses. Well, what are the gods and goddesses of our age? Well, there's the god and goddess of, of success and power. And there's the god and goddess of, you know, my reputation is the most important thing of all, what other people think of me. Because that's, you know, if people like me and people appreciate me and people value me, then they'll do what I want. And there's the, you know, the idol of good health and the idol of money and the idol of, of sexual pleasure and satisfying your appetites and all these things that we go through life thinking that this is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to make me secure. 
And David is saying, I don't want to chase any of these gods. I want to be focused and brought together. I want all the pieces woven together in this one quilt, this one path, this one way of life of being fully devoted to you. Unite my heart so that I would fear your name. And we struggle with that idea of fearing God because we, you know, God sounds like such a meanie and he's so angry and wrathful and, you know, he's a bully and, and what do we do? And that's what a lot of people in our culture think. That's what a lot of Christians struggle with. They maybe would never say that out loud, but that's what we're, we're thinking. But in scripture, when it talks about fearing God, it's, it's just understanding that you love him. He's so beautiful. He's so wonderful. He's so forgiving. He's so kind and gracious that you just want to worship him. You're in awe of him. You love him and you're in awe of him. And you yield to him. That's the idea of the fear of the Lord. I'm surrendering to him because there's no one greater, more lovely, more beautiful than him. And I love him. And I'm in awe of him. David says, take my heart, all the ways that I'm distracted, all the little pieces of my heart that I've given to these other gods and goddesses, just pull them back. I repent of that idolatry and I want to be fully devoted to you. And so I surrender to you, God. In verse 12, he says, I give thanks to you, God, Lord my God, with my whole heart, <laughs> because I'm wholly devoted to you. I'm not distracted by the idols. You know, doing you on Sunday at church and then Monday, you know, playing the, the game of climbing the corporate ladder and stepping on people and living for myself and gaining all the power I can, even though it'll corrupt me in the process. I give thanks to you, God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. I was on the brink of death. Sheol was the deepest pit in the mind of the Hebrew people. It was the grave. And they were thinking, you know, the worst place, the deepest pit I could go into is to go into the pit of death. And I was on the brink of dying. My situation was that bad. But in my poverty, I cried out to you. I cried out to you to rescue me because I couldn't rescue myself. And in my priority, I recognize that you alone are my savior. And so I'm fully devoted to you. I'm fully committed to you. I have no other hope but you. And just in case I'm wavering on that, unite my heart to fear you, God. Help me worship you with my whole heart. Because you rescued me. I was on the brink of death. And you pulled me back. Well, what was this brink of death that David was almost in? Look at verse 14. Here's the third stanza. Oh God, insolent men, insolent men, men that are arrogant, boastful, proud of their own power and strength and wisdom. These insolent men, these arrogant men have risen up against me. These band of ruthless men. They're so violent. They, they, they have no compassion. They have no sensitivity or, or, or even respect or fear of authority or, or the needs of other people or what the society at large would say and do. They have no respect for that whatsoever. And they just do whatever they want. And it says here, these, these, these arrogant and ruthless, violent men, they seek my life. They rise up against me. They, they actually want to kill me. That's the idea of seeking my life. 
The problem is, is they do not set you before them. They're not living their life as if God exists. They have no fear of God whatsoever. And these men are opposing me. And again, I don't know exactly when this occurred in David's life, but if you read through the book of, you know, First and Second Samuel, it happened all the time. <laughs> David was constantly on the run from those that were trying to destroy him. And yet, in all of this, he cried out to God. But then, verse 15, notice what it says. Would you read this verse with me too? But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David is saying, look, there are these men. They are so violent, so wicked, so ruthless. They want to destroy me. But God, you are faithful and you are merciful and you are compassionate and you are abounding in forgiveness and mercy. I cry out to you and you'll rescue me. And there's something else going on here in verse 15. I would say, if I were praying verse 14, you know, these guys are ready to kill me. They don't fear you. I would say something like, but I fear you, and God, I sure hope you come to the rescue because I'm about to die. And instead, David is confessing, God, you forgive. God, you're merciful. God, you're compassionate. It's almost like David is acknowledging that maybe there's some justification for these guys chasing him and trying to kill him. Do you see that? I think there's a little bit going on there. He's, he's like confessing his sin and crying out to God for forgiveness. And it's like, you know, <laughs> if I hadn't cheated with Bathsheba, then Absalom wouldn't be chasing me. David is acknowledging there's a spirit of repentance. There's a willingness to admit that I'm wrong. God, I need you to rescue me, but I, I need your forgiveness and mercy most of all. David then asked specifically for help. Turn to me, verse 16. Be gracious to me. And notice what he asked for. Give strength to your servant. I'm weak. I'm helpless. I want to follow you. I want to walk in your way. I want to do your will, but I'm weak. I don't have the ability to resist sin. I don't have the ability to stand up for what's right. I'm easily frightened. I need your strength. I have no power to do what I need to do. Would you please give me that strength? And then he says, save the son of your maidservant. Just another descriptive way to point out himself. You know, my mom feared you too, not just me. My, my mom, my parents, they worshiped you. They served you. And, and this, is a, this is a family heritage. My mom was your servant. I'm your servant. You're my master. Are you going to take care of me or not? Would you save me? Would you rescue me? Is there something you need to be rescued from? Maybe, maybe it is a, a, a big calamity that's breathing down on you, financial ruin or, or you know, some sort of medical calamity. But, but what about the very soul that you have? What about your relationship with God? Are, are you lost? Are you separated from him? Have you been forgiven? Have you been forgiven and accepted by this God? Have you been welcomed into his family? You need to be saved from that permanent isolation from him. Save the son of your maidservant. And then verse 17, show me a sign 
Give me a token. That's what the King James Version says. Give me a token of your favor. Or better, I like, is the words, give me a signal. Give me a signal. Shoot up a flare. Wave a flag. Do something that shows me, you know, a banner on the battlefield. Show me that you really are working in all of this. You know, that famous picture from World War II of the Marines erecting the flag on, you know, on Iwo Jima. And there's a statue of that down in Washington. There's just something very powerful. As Americans, we look at that and we say, that's a sign of victory. That's a sign that, that our forces captured that island during the war to help end that war. It's, it's something that's very moving to patriotic Americans. We're touched by that signal, that sign of victory. And David is saying here, I'm praying that you'd give me a signal, that you'd raise a, a banner on the battlefield that would remind me and really, not just me, but would remind my enemies that you are victorious, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Put to shame, why? Put to shame because they see they've been picking on me, and now they're going to be defeated. They're going to be crushed because you're rescuing me and saving me because you, Lord, you, Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. You've come to my rescue. I pray that you'd wave that flag, that you'd raise that banner so everybody sees that ultimately I'm victorious because you're victorious. You're the one who rescues me. It's interesting that word sign in verse 17. It's used to describe the plagues in Egypt during the Exodus. You know, the frogs, the lice, the Nile River turning the blood, ultimately the Passover. All those were signs, those were flags God was waving, signals that he was doing something to set the Israelites free. But then you go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and God gives a promise to the king. And it's a promise that we realize it's more than just a baby being born to a king's family. It's a, it's a prophecy. It has a prophetic element. And it reminds us of the coming Christ because it says in verse 17 of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, for a virgin shall conceive, and this is a sign to you, a sign from the Lord, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Are you looking for a sign? Are you looking for a sign that God is on your side? Are you looking for a sign that God wants to help and deliver you, that God wants to answer prayers, that God wants to save and strengthen you? Are you looking for a sign? Look no further than the cross. Understand that Christ came. He came to give us strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and strengthens you. You know, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. And so he's the one who saves us. He's the one who sacrificed his life on the cross and died on our behalf so that we could be forgiven, so that our shame could be taken away and our guilt could be forgiven and we could be restored and reconciled to God. And that all happened when Christ died on that cross. And you see, you and I, when we come to God in prayer, we're poor and needy, but Christ made himself he who was rich, poor and needy, and died in our place on the cross. But do you really want the sign that God is on your side? That God wants to answer your prayers? That God wants to pour out his power in your life and situation? 
It's the empty tomb. He's risen from the dead. That's a sign for all people. A sign that shows us that God is on the move and working on behalf of his people. And when you're afraid that God doesn't want to answer your prayers and you're convinced that God doesn't hear you, that he's not paying attention to you, if you look at the cross and the tomb that's empty, you understand that he indeed is listening to you, that he does care for you, that his power is available to you. And if you would just turn to him, he will turn to you and save and strengthen because he's already sent the signal that he loves you and he cares for you by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. He's done that for you. So as you go to prayer, I suggest you even take this psalm and just pray through it. Just read it out loud to God. Go to a quiet place and just read it out loud. And just pause maybe after every verse and just think about it. Do you see your poverty? Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be frightened by that. Don't be anxious about that. Take that poverty, because you are poor just as I am. In that poverty, go to the Lord. He wants to help you and rescue you. Do you have the right priority when it comes to prayer? Do you understand that it's about accomplishing his will and worshiping and honoring him and ultimately surrendering to him? Not just having a comfortable life, not just being rich, not just being healthy, not just living long, but God save me so that I might serve you. Do you understand that Jesus gave his life for you so that you can give your life to him? David is showing a steadfast love for God, a steadfast commitment to God, because God has steadfastly loved and been committed to him. That's why he can be our priority. Do you understand that in your weakness and in your failure and your fear, God wants to pour out his power upon those who are weak? And that power is available in prayer. And you know God answers your prayers because he sent his son Jesus for you to save you. David was looking forward to that. But you and I can look back. And here's the kicker. All throughout this psalm, David refers to God as his master and David is his servant. And that's a good thing. Paul says he's the servant of the Lord in some of his letters. You see that in other places in scripture. We're the servants of the Lord. But you know what Jesus said the night right before his death on the cross, his arrest and death on the cross, Jesus told his disciples, and you see this in John chapter 16, I used to call you servants, but now I call you friends. Servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but friends tell each other everything that's going on. You're not just a servant of Christ, yes, but you're his friend. And even beyond that, we now have God as our Heavenly Father, and we are His children, and we have the privilege of crying out to Him and calling on Him, and our Daddy, our Heavenly Father, will come to the rescue. My prayer for you and me is that we would really pray, and that we would use this passage to pray, because He's the God that comes to our rescue. It starts with repentance. It starts with, like David did in verse 15, just admitting, God, I need to surrender to you. But when I do, God will come through. 
because he's the God who is so steadfast and faithful and loving and caring for you and me. If you turn to God, he will indeed turn to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time to be together today. I thank you for my friends who are here, and I thank you that uh, because of Jesus, we can even say that you're our friend when we trust in you. And so I ask that, Lord, we, out of the friendship that we have with you, would be honest about our poverty and cry out to you, and would be honest about our lack of making you our priority, that we would surrender to you. Unite our hearts that we would fear you, God. Teach us your truth that we would walk in your ways. Lord, help us do that. And I ask that, Lord, we would walk in faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that we would see very clearly that your power is available to all of us to save us, to strengthen us. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus, the one who does all this for us. Help us turn to you, Lord, we pray. Thank you for being the God that will turn to us. We ask this in your name now. Amen.